But I want to begin reading in verse number 23. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse number 23. The Word of God says, "...in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people." And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, plucked off their hair, made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless... Even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? One of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Nehemiah closes this narrative portion by saying, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for another opportunity to be in your house, Lord. If we had what was coming to us, we'd be in hell this morning. But by your grace and mercy, we find ourselves in this place. I pray that it not be moments wasted. Lord, we would have come with our hearts ready and prepared. And if not, that in these few swift moments before we preach, that we would ask you to open our hearts and to prepare our minds to the truth that You're going to set before us. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your goodness and grace. Pray that You would affect Your will in our hearts and minds. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the past four weeks, we have preached on this thought, getting your spiritual house in order. Uh, Nehemiah, when he arrives back into the city of Jerusalem, he finds the place in disarray. Now, this is interesting because uh, the whole book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra too are occupied with setting things in order. The children of Israel were of course taken away into captivity. The northern ten tribes by the Assyrians, the southern two tribes by the Babylonians. And they were the southern two tribes for 70 years in Babylonian captivity until God moves on the heart of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian emperor. And he allows a contingent of the uh, Jews to go back under the auspices of uh, building the temple and under the administration of Ezra. So they go back and they build the temple. Then God puts upon the heart of a man named Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king there in Persia, to go back and rebuild the walls. You don't have much of a city if you don't have walls. And so he goes back and he rebuilds the walls. Uh, the worship has been instituted. The walls have been rebuilt. Of course, any time that God's people make up their mind to do something for the Lord, the devil's going to get upset about it. I'm reminded in the Old Testament when uh, the Bible says that, uh, that Joshua stood up, the high priest stood up uh, to stand before the children of Israel to minister. And the Bible also says that Satan stood up to withstand the children of Israel in the numbering uh, through David when he was king, the numbering of the children of Israel. Thank God, I'm glad that uh, in the New Testament, Stephen, uh, when he's being stoned, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. 
I'm glad John in Revelation chapter number 4, when he looks into the veil and when he sees the scene of glory, he sees a lamb slain but standing and worthy to open the seals. Man, I'm glad. Listen, when God's people stand up and do something for God, the devil's sure enough going to stand up against them. But I'm glad when that happens that God Almighty will stand up and take the part of His people and help us to accomplish the will of God and to do the work of God. Well, whenever they stood up to do the work of God, Satan stood up too. He said, I've got my people to withstand the work of God. But when we come to this 13th chapter of the Nehemiah, of the book of Nehemiah, all this is pastors. In fact, we find that the temple has been rebuilt and the children of Israel had all the resources they needed to serve God. There was nothing stopping them from serving God for lack of resources. The wall had been restored. That tells me that they had the freedom to serve God. They didn't have enemies uh, bouncing in from all different sides of the country and climbing over broken walls and pushing through the rubble and sacking the city and taking the uh, resources of the temple. They had the freedom to serve God. And then the enemy had been rebuffed. Uh, those that had withstood the work of God had been fought back and thwarted. And so they had the ability to serve God. In other words, they are free and clear to do as they please. They have a temple to worship God in. They have a wall to protect them from the enemies without. They have God's victory to protect them from the enemies within. They have everything they need to serve God. And you would imagine when you came to the 13th chapter that everything would be, uh, to use a sophisticated word, hunky-dory. Amen? Man, you would imagine that that burnt offering would be going all the time. The fires would be burning. You'd imagine that people would be bringing sacrifices into the temple. You would imagine that incense would have been burning. You would have thought that everything would have been clicking right along the way that it was supposed to be. But instead, when Nehemiah comes back, he finds the place in shambles. He finds the house of God has been abandoned. He finds that the people of God have been uh, absent from doing their work. He finds that the priests have abdicated their responsibility. He shows up. He walks into the house of God and there ain't nobody there. He says, man, what happened to this place? And he begins to walk through the city of Jerusalem and then through the countryside eventually. And he finds some problems that had led to the condition of disrepair in the house of God. You know, I found this to be true. We're a lot like these Israelites in that this New Testament dispensation of grace, this church age that we live in, man, we got all the resources we need to serve God. Hey, you got all the Bible you're going to get. You got all the Holy Ghost you're going to get. I know that there's some talk about a second blessing. Man, I think when the Lord blesses us, He blesses us right the first time. Somebody say amen right there. We've got the Holy Ghost. Hey, listen, the church, she ain't perfect, but it ain't going to get no better. Somebody say amen. People are going to people. That's been my philosophy over the past year or so, is people are going to people anywhere where people are people. Amen. And the church is not a perfect place. I love the church, man. Christ loved the church. He gave Himself. He died for it. I love the church. Hey, I love Tennessee football, and it ain't near as good as the church. I love the church. And uh, the church as an entity, it's not going to get any better. It is what it is, not until one day when Christ raptures us out of this world. So here's the question I have to ask. Is your spiritual house in good order? The fact is, we have everything we need, but you and I both know Christians and have known Christians through the years just as saved as you and I, 
just as indwelt by the Holy Ghost as you and I, just as, as much a beneficiary of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the New Testament church, and yet their life is in order. Their home is in shambles. Their kids are out. Their own testimonies are in wreckage. Their life is a mess. And I think as we walked through this chapter over the past few weeks, we found a few of the areas where there might need to be some attention given. We walked through and we talked about our uh, our associations. Uh, you can't run, run with the wrong crowd and expect to stay right. That's just a fact. Hey, even, even the old philosophers said that birds of a feather, they flock together. And pretty soon, you run around with the wrong crowd, it's eventually going to come back to bite you. We talked about getting your sanctification right. There were certain things they had to get out of the temple. And certain things they had to get into the temple. You know, it's a real simple equation for a lot of us. Uh, we always say, well, Lord, show me. Lord, teach me. Lord, deal with me. And sometimes I wonder if God isn't sitting up in glory saying, there's things I have showed you that you won't deal with. There are things that I have pointed out to you that you won't address. And the fact of the matter is, hey, just like Peter of old, uh, he had to launch out a little bit before he could launch out into the deep. Some of us are saying, God, launch us out into the deep. And he's saying, I would if you'd unhook from the dock. If you'd get some things right in your life, then I'd be able to take you to deeper waters. We talked about getting our consecration right, getting separated to the cause of God, getting our dedication right. Man, we need to get devoted to the work of God. But in the verses that we've read this morning, we have a final thought in this series. And I think it's about the heart and the home. Of course, the context of it makes it clear that uh, Nehemiah is dealing specifically with the homes there in Israel. It appears from the text that this was not taking place in Jerusalem itself. Because he says in verse number 23, In those days also saw I Jews. He's saying this, I was walking through Jerusalem and I cleaned up a bunch of messes there, but I also saw some Jews, not all of them, but there were some Jews in some places, he says, probably in some place other than Jerusalem, as he surveyed the land and the and the nation. He says, I came across some Jews and they had intermarried with women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And he said that as a result of this, the children that were of Ammonite, Ashdodite, and Moabite, uh, wives, they spake in their language. And the children that were of Jewish mothers, they spake in their language. And he said, when I walked into those houses, I mean, it was an absolute mess. It was chaos. Nobody could understand each other. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody had been taught the truth of God's Word. And he said, I looked at this and I recognized, man, we got a problem here. Can I tell you something today? Part of our problem in society is we're trying to raise up Christians on worldly standards. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, next week's Easter, right? And that's when the preacher has to be nice and behaved and everything and preach an encouraging message. You just happen to have the misfortune of showing up the Sunday before Easter. Because I will tell you that this is a heavy message. The fact is, our nation is headed a wrong direction. And it's not because of what's going on in the White House. It's because of what's going on in our houses. We have abdicated our responsibility to raise up Christian young people and to provide a Christian home. And because of that, we have produced in young people a level of confusion. I want to get into my message. I don't want to preach it before I get into it. But as we look at this passage, I think it's really a matter of the heart. We read that later on, Nehemiah, he invokes the name Solomon. 
And he describes that the sin that they are committing is the same sin that Solomon committed. Solomon, of course, was a wise king. But he ends his life in disgrace because the Bible says that he allowed his heart to be turned away from God and unto strange wives. He took his heart from God's hand and put it into the hands of people that had worldly ideals, worldly principles, worldly ambitions, worldly philosophies... And because of that, he ends his life in disgrace. And Nehemiah looks at what's going on. He says, you all are going down the exact same path. He's saying, you have given your hearts to the wrong people. You have allowed your affections to be centered on the wrong things. And I want to take a moment this morning and preach on getting your affections right. Can I tell you something? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And it even goes a step further, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we love, what we grow infatuated with, what we populate our life with is going to dictate the direction of our life. I think very often we have this tendency, this philosophy to think to ourselves that we can compartmentalize our desires, our ambitions, our love and compartmentalize that away from our decisions. You say, well, how do you know that, preacher? Because there's people every day that make decisions that are destroying their life that would claim that they don't want to go down that road. And as believers, as Christians, I think we're guilty of the same thing. Notice with me this passage, the atrocities in verse number 23 and 24. Nehemiah says, In those days also saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. We see that it began with compromise. Compromise, by the way, there's sort of two connotations. There's compromise in the secular sense, and that means two people with opposing views trying to find a middle ground to reach a greater good. But compromise, as it is presented in Scripture, carries with it the idea of a movement away from biblical truth and principles to acquiesce or appease some opposing force. Can I tell you something this morning? Listen, I I think that there are a lot of things in life that require compromise. But I think when it comes to biblical truth... When it comes to biblical positions, and I don't know if you realize this, but listen, I'm raising two boys right now. I get one shot at that. I don't get another shot. I don't have time to let the laboratory of my personal opinions play out. i got to get it right the first time. And the only way that you or I can hope for our homes to be the right kind of homes is for us to dedicate ourselves to biblical truth and principles. The world's going to tell you you're crazy. There's going to be a thousand people out there with parenting books and and blogs and seminars that are going to tell you that they know better than God. But it's a very, very simple proposition. At the end of the day, we either believe that God is right in the way that we craft our homes or we don't. And if we believe that God is right, then we must recognize there's no room for compromise away from biblical truth. Nehemiah later equates their mistake with Solomon. These Jews had given their hearts and their homes to women of three nations, Ashdod. Ashdod was a Philistine city. And the Philistines forever are the opposing force to the people of God in that region. You know, it's amazing to me that as Bible believers, we could think that we can craft our home and our ideals and our principles around the system that the world presents to us and wind up with anything other than worldlings. It's shocking to me that we could be so naive as to believe that we could put the same entertainment, the same standards, the same philosophies, the same ambitions, the same goals 
into our children's lives as the world does and expect that they're going to turn out any different than the world turns out. Listen, at the end of the day, I, I, I've been, I got to do a little bit of trout fishing this year, not much. And uh, I, I got out there and they had just stocked the trout. I don't know if you've ever seen them do that. I ain't going to ask, ain't nobody, me and, and like three others might have seen it. But uh, they, they, ba- they back a big pickup truck up to the river. This is how I would stock. If a six-year-old described to you how to stock trout into a river, this is how it happens. And it's really how they do it. They have a big pickup truck with thousands of trout in it. They back it up to the water, open the tailgate, take a big old squeegee, and scoop them into the river. I was out there, and they had been stocking. And uh, because of all the rain and stuff, the bite's been slow, and ain't nobody been catching anything. But you started to get into those little stalker trout. And they're just maybe about that big, but they're only like as big around as a pencil. They're, they're fun to catch. They're not hardly worth keeping. But if you taste the difference, if you eat trout, if you taste the difference between a stalker trout... And a wild trout, you can immediately taste a difference. Anybody that's ever done any kind of deep sea fishing or ocean fishing, you know that when you eat a fish out of the ocean, you can taste the ocean. Am I right? Stick with me. I know I'm still preaching. I didn't stroke out up here and think I'm in another room. I'm going somewhere. You just be patient. And you can taste it. It don't taste like Captain D's. It tastes like the ocean. Well, when you're catching those trout out of the river, the older ones that have been in the river for a while, this is going to sound gross to some of y'all, but it kind of tastes like the river. It tastes like the river smells. And it's got a taste of the river about it. Those little stalkers, they don't taste like that. They've been growing up in a tank, uh, eating feed, and just swimming around in a circle for several weeks, and they haven't had time. You see, what you feast on is going to determine the flavor of your life. If you put a certain thing in your life often enough, you're eventually going to embrace and appropriate the qualities and characteristics of that thing. How do we miss this? Hey, listen, Christ said that it's not the things that go out of a man, but the things that He puts into a man that pervert, that corrupt Him. At the end of the day, listen, if we run on a steady diet of the world's concepts and philosophies and entertainment... We can't be surprised when we begin to live and behave and look and act like the world. There was a compromise. They had given their heart and homes to the world's philosophy. The Moabites, the Ammonites, they are forever the sort of kindred opposing force to the children of Israel. They are both the product of the relationship between Lot and his daughters. And of course, through that, Lot was the nephew of Abraham. There is a kinship. And the Moabites and the Ammonites, they are representative of the flesh. If we live our life with a philosophy of if it feels good, do it, we can't be surprised when we wind up hedonistic. I'm just here to give you some real simple principles this morning. If we compromise on biblical truth about these things, if we give our hearts and our homes to these things, then we cannot be shocked when it produces an effect that we do not desire. We can't raise our children in the world's philosophies. And by the way, this ain't just children. This has to do with your marriage. You might be sitting here single saying, well, this ain't a message for me. It's got to do with what you put into your life. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect your spouse. It's going to affect your kids. There was a compromise, and as a result of that, there was a corruption. They couldn't speak the same language. It's interesting because commentators have two different takes on this passage. Some of them think what it means is that they spoke a mongrel language. But here's the problem, and this is what I see in the church today. The problem is we have created a mongrel culture between the world and Bible Christianity. 
We have tried. That's what the, that's what the new evangelical movement is. That's what the, the contemporary movement is. It's saying, we're going to take the world's methods and we're going to take the world's ways and we're going to slap Christian on top of it and deceive somebody. Make, make people think, hey, we can have that and have this too. Here's what I'm saying. The problem is this. We have created that mongrel culture, but it has not produced a confusion. It has produced a cohesiveness in the wrong direction. They speak each other's language. The problem is that language ain't the biblical language. They're going that direction. And there's lots of folks going with them that'll clap with them, that'll be happy for them, that'll applaud them, that'll support it. It hasn't bred a confusion in that sense. I think what's going on here is not a mongrel language, it is a mixed language. In other words, you had the mothers of that were Ashdodites raising their children in the language of Ashdod. Mothers that were Ammonites that were raising their children in the language of Ammon. Uh, mothers that were Moabites raising their children to speak in the Moabitish language. And very often these Jews might have multiple wives and children that were mixed in with this family. And even in the same home, you know what you had? Nobody could understand what was going on because there was no cohesive principle that was guiding the home. In other words, you had parents that had learned to speak both languages. You listening now? Parents had learned to speak both languages. And they could communicate, but they couldn't figure out why their kids could not understand one another. They couldn't figure out why they had learned both languages, but as a result, their children only learned one language. Listen carefully. We have this idea that if we introduce worldliness into our home, we're giving our children options. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. Don't you realize the world is forever presenting options to our children to go the way of the world? All the time. You ever think about the prodigal son? Where did he hear about the far country? He's raised on daddy's farm. The far country is going to find its way into your home. You're not doing your children favors. You're not doing your spouse a favor. You're not doing yourself a favor by embracing worldliness. In other words, you're not multiplying the options that you're setting in front of people. You're minimizing them. You're never showing them a righteous path. And so all they ever see and know is the wrong path. You know, there's people all over this world that are dying and going to hell thinking they're right. Thinking they're right. They're raised in it. And that's all that they've ever known. Uh, listen, you th- I, I would say this. This is a bold statement, but I'm going to make it anyway. I would say the vast majority of Muslims are more devoted to their faith than the vast majority of people calling themselves Christians. You say, well, they're going to go to heaven? No, they're not. Billy Graham won't answer that question. Joel Osteen won't answer that question. The Bible answers it. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's none other name. Under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. Muslim may be as sincere as they can possibly be, and they'll be sincerely lost. And they're going down a path that they've been raised to believe is right. The fact is, listen, when we put the wrong path in our home, we are not expanding the options and the choices of our family, of our spouse, of our children. We're limiting them. They're not going to see righteousness in the world. They're only going to see righteousness if we will walk righteously in front of them. What I'm saying is this. The parents could speak both languages. They'd learn how to put a foot in each camp. Otherwise, they couldn't have been married. But the children didn't get that option. And here's what we're getting. There's some of us, we've been raised, we know what's right, we know what's wrong. If we don't teach our children what's right, the world will teach them what's wrong. So if we don't teach them what's right, then they don't have any choice but to go the direction that the world presents before. 
There was a corruption that took place. They couldn't understand each other. One of the hardest things. Well, let's move on. Look at the next phrase. The Bible says, but according to the language of each people, there was confusion. There was confusion. I think one of the great reasons that we're losing children today is that we're sending mixed signals in the home. We're sending mixed signals in the home. Listen, we tell our children that church is important until there's an event that we want to be a part of. Then church ain't important. We tell our children that they ought to not allow any wicked thing to pass before their eye. But then when it's dad's favorite program or mom's favorite program, then there's a pass. We tell our children that they need to not put trash in their ears. But then when it's our favorite nostalgic trash, there's a pass given to it. And then we wonder why our kids are confused. We wonder why they're confused. And it's all the worse, listen, if they get sent out into the world. And listen, God gave you your children to parent uh, the way that He leads you. And it's not my prerogative as a pastor to come in and parent your children. But I will say this, we have to recognize that when they are in an environment that is openly hostile to Bible Christianity, and when they're in the state school system, they're in an environment that's openly hostile to Bible Christianity. Listen, I'm not saying you need to pull your kids out of school. I'm not saying you need to do this, need to do that. I'm still working on trying to figure mine out. But I'm just saying we as parents need to recognize that they are in that environment. And they're getting 40 plus hours a week of people undermining. We think we're going to undo that with four hours a week at church. If we're faithful, it's going to take more than that. There was confusion. And no wonder there was confusion, man. Nobody was speaking the same language. It's so vitally important in our home, in our marriages, with our children, with our relationship with our church family. Communication is so paramount. We've got to be speaking the same language. We've got to be speaking the same language. We've got to be talking to each other. We've got to be communicating. The same thing with our kids. We got to be. It's hard. Kids ask a thousand questions. They ask questions that, that, that ain't even questions, you know? You'll be like, can we go outside? They know it's raining. Why? I don't know why it's raining. I'm not a weatherman. I'm not God. Look out the window. It's raining. We, we can't go outside. I understand it's hard, but there is a tendency sometimes as parents, we grow dismissive of that inquisitive nature. That's why we say things like, because I said so. What we really mean is, because I'm tired of saying so. That's why. Because I'm tired of it. But let us recognize that when we stop communicating biblical truth, when we stop giving clear scriptural answers to why we do what we do and why it's important, then we create a vacuum and a space in their mind and in their heart that the world will fill. Will fill. If we won't give the right answer, the world will give the wrong answer. And we'll wake up one day speaking a different language. We'll wake up one day not being able to communicate biblical truth one to another. I don't mean a literal physical language. I mean spiritually speaking. They had not instilled in their children biblical principles. And because of that, and, and that's an active thing we do. It's, an, it's not a passive thing we do. It's got to do with sitting around the Bible and teaching your children. Reading the Bible to them. Teaching them how to pray. Teaching them why church is important. Teaching them what baptism is. Teaching them what the Lord's Supper is. Teaching them why it's important to pick the right friends. Teaching them why it's important to stay consecrated. Stay close to the Lord. They ain't born with this knowledge. They ain't born with it. we got to put it in their lives. Parent isn't just a noun. It's a verb. we got to put it in their lives. And at the end of the day, listen, if we're not careful, we'll wake up one day 
and we'll realize we've lost them because they don't understand us and we don't understand them anymore. We're speaking different languages. We sent mixed signals to them. We, church mattered until it didn't matter. The Bible mattered until it didn't matter. Prayer worked until we got discouraged. And we sent mixed signals to them. We spoke in different languages. And we in our adult mind said, well, I understand all the nuance of it. Yeah, whatever our excuse is. But at the end of the day, what it's produced in them is a disjointed schizophrenic concept of truth. You want to know how this world sold the lie that truth is relative? Because we made it relative in our homes. We quit being absolute about things. When it was convenient to stand on truth, we stand on truth. But then when it became inconvenient, we compromised. And then we send kids away to a college environment that says, oh, by the way, what your parents said, they weren't sincere. They're not legitimate. They're not telling you the truth. All truth is really relative. It's to each their own. And they go, well, huh, that kind of makes sense to me. Because I was kind of raised that way. All truth was just simply relative, that it was whatever was convenient. Listen, I'm not trying to be severe this morning, but I'm trying to say this, uh, and I'll get into it here in a moment. Nehemiah took a severe position against this. He got downright agitated. He, he got, as one philosopher said, tore up from the floor up when he saw what was going on. You know why? Because the stakes were so high. They were so high. You understand that this is the same generation that risked their life to leave Babylon to come back and to rebuild the walls. In one generation, in one generation, they lost it. They lost it. It happens that quick. Listen, and you've heard me say this before, but the sower, he holds the seed in his hand when he goes to sow, and he's got the past and he's got the future, and he's the one that sets the destiny of the crop. If he won't sow, there ain't no seed to birth, to grow. There's no fruit. There's no crop. He holds it all in his hand. There's a lot of applications we can make, man. But you understand that we in our marriages and we with our children and, and we with our grandchildren, we with our nieces, our nephews, any, any influence we have that we hold the past and the future in our hands. And it's up to us to sow the seed. We see the atrocities. Notice not only the atrocities, I want you to notice the aggression of Nehemiah. Now, I promise I ain't never going to do this to anybody, but Nehemiah did it. Look what it said in verse 25. He said, I contended with them and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Now, there's a lot of reasons what Nehemiah did here was right. For one thing, he's dealing with grown men. He ain't dealing with little kids. He ain't dealing with women. He's dealing with grown men. And when it says that he smote some of them, uh, he's a grown man hitting a grown man, smacking him right across the jaw. And he ain't their preacher. He ain't their pastor. He ain't their deacon. He is the leader of their nation. And he's getting rough with them. You know why? Because he looked and he saw the future of the nation slipping away. He recognized, you know what was going to happen to the next generation? The next generation, there would be a whole contingent that couldn't speak the Jews' language, that raised their children speaking the Ashdod language, the Ammonite language, the Moabite language. And then they were going to have their children, and they were going to have their children, and you would have this whole contingency in the nation that had no familiarity with the God of Israel. He sees the very nation slipping away. So he does a few things. One, he contended with them. You know what that means? He stated clearly the biblical scriptural reason for why he was upset. This is so important. We've got to speak clearly, scripturally, biblically about why we believe what we believe. 
We owe that to our spouses. We owe it to our children. We owe it to our church family. We owe it to a lost and dying world to have informed positions on matters that we can communicate clearly. We spend all our time watching videos and trying to figure out how we can, we can somehow trick somebody into admitting biblical truth. If we just learn how to state it clearly, we'd find an audience of people that are looking for what's right and are looking for the way. I, if, if we would just learn what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to present it biblically, that would go a long way. That would go a long way. I'll tell you this, man. It, saying, because I said so... Because I'm the boss, because that's the way it is, that may shut them up for a little while, but sooner or later they're going to need a better answer than that. Sooner or later they're going to need a better answer. I'm talking about our kids. They're going to need a better answer than that. And we better be ready to give it to them. He contended with them. He cursed them. This doesn't mean that he used foul language. It doesn't mean that he, that he cussed at them. But what it's saying is this, that they had brought upon themselves a curse and he articulated that curse to them. He pronounced that they had, because of the path that they had taken, they were bringing this heartache upon themselves. And we have to do the same thing. We have to clearly articulate to our spouse, our children, our loved ones, our nieces, our nephews, our grandkids, our friends, our family. We have to clearly articulate to them from the Word of God why what they're doing is so destructive. With our kids, we need, we need them to understand Listen, if, if you allow somebody to use your body as an amusement park, one of these days you're going to find somebody that you love, that you give your life to in a consecrated way, and there'll be a part of yourself you can't give to that person. That you can't give to that person. You're going to sit there heartbroken over the fact that you cannot give that part of your life. Listen, you, you especially you men and young men, if you, if you allow your eye to be a dumpster for all of the world's pornography and smut and, and, and filth, it's going to warp the way that you think love is. To the degree that you can't even love someone the right way. Because it's warped what you think that love is. If we allow our, our mind to become the playground of all varying ideologies in such a way that it uproots what we know to be truth because we've experienced, we know that to be truth because it's changed us, and we allow that to be uprooted, we're going to have a hard time finding our way back to the position of biblical truth. I'm saying we have to tell people why it's hurting them. It's not enough to just say, well, it's because it's wrong and because I said so. We have to articulate to them why this is so destructive. He contended with them. He, and I, and I, I sort of wavered between two words. I wanted to say he clocked them. And then I wanted to say he clobbered them. And I guess both of those would be true. Because the Bible says he smote some up. Now, this don't mean he ran around just decking people. But what it does mean is this, there were certain men that stood up and withstood him. He's the leader of the nation. And he's saying, we're going to stop this nonsense, it's going to destroy our nation. And somebody stood up and said, you ain't going to tell me what to do. And he said, you watch this. And here's what I want you to understand. He got aggressive with those that embraced affections that died hard. There are certain things that it's going to be easy for you to change in your home. You, you can walk out of here, you can go out those double doors, go home, walk in. Honey, we're going to start reading the Bible every night. And probably your wife is going to say, all right, we're going to pray before every meal. Your family's going to say, okay. But you walk through and you're going to say, hey, listen, there's some of these movies in here we need to get rid of. That might die hard. You're going to go in there, you're going to say, hey, there's some music we've allowed in this house we, we're going to have to deal with. That might die a little harder. 
You might have to go in and say, hey, listen, I know we've been used to doing this activity or that activity instead of being faithful to church, but we're going to have to cut that out because we're sending the wrong message. That might die a little harder. I ain't telling you to smack your wife or your kids. But I am saying this. Sometimes it does require a forcefulness of, of discipline of the mind, of saying, I know I'm going to run into opposition, but I believe it's worth it. I believe it's worth it. Now listen, I know you can wreck your home if you do that over a bunch of silly nonsense. But if we're talking about biblical principles and truth, have faith in God's Word and stand upon it. He contended with them. He, he cursed them. He condemned them. He plucked some of their hair off. Now, that wasn't just him being mean, right? But the plucking off of hair or the shaving off of hair was used to signify great shame. Great shame. And what he was doing was he was casting their actions in a shameful light. He was trying to embarrass them over the decisions that they had made. He said, well, preacher, that doesn't sound healthy. Oh, sure it does. We ought to feel ashamed of our sin. We ought to feel ashamed of our sin. And you say, well, preacher, I don't want to live in shame. Then don't live in sin. That's simple, right? It's funny how we present that false dichotomy. That's what the world does. The world says, well, we ought not put any shame upon anybody's sin because we don't want them to feel ashamed. We don't do it because we want them to feel ashamed. We do it because we don't want them to live in sin that's going to consequently destroy their lives. There are some things we should feel ashamed about. Men, if you ain't leading your home, you should feel ashamed about that. If you're not teaching your kids the Bible, I'm not saying you ought to walk out here and, and, and you know, nose in the ground and kicking the, oh, no, I'm so awful. No, just change what you're doing. Read your Bible with the kids. Pray with the kids. Teach them biblical truth. That's your job. Same thing to you, Mama. It's your job to be influencing that, to be putting that in their lives, to be teaching them by example and by explanation these things. And when we don't do those things, we should feel ashamed. We should feel like we've let them down. We should feel like we have abdicated our responsibility and abandoned our post. We should feel like there's stuff we should be doing that we're not doing. A little shame is healthy as long as we don't uh, pour a foundation and build a house there. It's okay to feel a little shame if that motivates us to say, I need to get this thing right. I need to get it right. And finally, you know what he did? He commanded them. Don't get excited when I said finally. I don't mean the sermon's over. I just He commanded them. He said, all right, let's cut this nonsense out now. Let's stop this. At the end of the day, you say, well, what does that mean to me? At the end of the day, we have to recognize that it's not just a suggestion, it's a command that we live separated lives, that we live righteously. That's not just a recommendation. That's something that God says, if you want to be happy, if you want to have a productive, successful spiritual life, then you're going to have to do these things. These are not just, well, this is one way to do it. We've allowed that thinking to infect us. Well, your way, my way, their way, everybody's way. No, there is the way. It's the biblical way. It's it's not my way. It's the biblical way. It's a command. Notice not only the uh, aggression, but notice the appeal that he gives. He mentions Solomon. He mentions Solomon's legacy. He says Solomon is known by the fact that he gave his heart to these... The Bible uses the term outlandish, outlandish women, on the outliers. Women whose ideals and principles were not in line with what he knew to be right and true. People on the fringe, outlandish. And what he's saying here is this. He points to the fact that what Solomon, what we know him by, 
is that he ended his life in disgrace. He mentioned Solomon's majesty. He says there was never a king like Solomon. That God loved him the way that he loved him, put him on the throne, and he loved God. The queen of Sheba came, and, and because she had heard of the fame of his wealth, of his riches, of his splendor, when she shows up, she says, man, all oh, that's wonderful, but the way that your people love you and serve you and are excited to serve you, that's a treasure far above what storehouses could hold. He was the wisest man other than the Lord that ever lived. And he ended his life in disgrace. He ended it in disgrace. You know why? Because at the end of the day, he gave his heart and his home to the wrong people. So here's the question. Here's what Nehemiah is getting across. He says, nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to transgress in this sin this day? What he's saying is this. If it got Solomon, it'll get you. It'll get you. We do this thing to make ourselves feel better, where we always impute unto people whose lives are grave failures a special status of mistake and of error and of folly. Where that we say to ourselves and can say to ourselves, well, they did that, but I never would. And you know what the closer reality is? The closer reality is that we are very often very slimly separated from those whose lives are made shipwreck often by one or two decisions that we've made in life. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's a pretty pretty uh, zero-tolerance policy. You're telling me I've got to get everything right? No. When you get it wrong, you need to get it right. You're going to get it wrong sometimes. That's okay. Just so long as when you get it wrong, and then when you know you've got it wrong, then you get it right. Solomon, he had all these advantages, all these benefits. Think about his home, man. His home wound up a mess. An absolute, utter mess. His kingdom did not outlast his son's first few years. And it was in the, in the ditch. He gave his home to the wrong people. He gave his son the greatest upbringing. Any, imagine what life was like for little Rehoboam being raised in the palace. Your daddy is the richest, wisest man to ever live. You have everything you could ever imagine. Your, li- your home is the Library of Congress. Your home is, 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 is it's like a, 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 there's fountains of gold. There's, there's wealth everywhere that you turn. He had every advantage. And he wound up a failure. Can I just make this statement? I was going to make it probably 20 minutes ago and somehow it got lost. What you do in moderation, others will do in excess. The parents spake both languages. The children only spake one. Solomon, he maintained the kingdom in his time. But his child never recovered from the bad example that was set before him. Notice when I'm done this morning, the application of this. Uh, Nehemiah, he puts it into real practical life terms. He gets back and he sees that one of the sons of Jehoi- or of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, I'll say it right, he ain't in here, he wouldn't know, he can't correct me. He was the grandson of Eliashib, the high priest. He was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. It was a corrupted home. They had made allegiances and alliances with wrong influences. So you know what Nehemiah does? He says, I chased him from me. You say, he could do that? Well, he just got through hitting a bunch of grown men. I guess he could. He chased him from him. In other words, Nehemiah put this to work in his own life. When he got back to Jerusalem, he said, man, there's stuff I need to deal with right now. You know, there's probably stuff in our homes we need to be dealing with before the sun sets. If we're being honest. Now, if you want to play games, that's fine. That's up to you. It's your life. But just reckon, people say, well, it's my life. 
Only God can judge me. You believe that? Then that ought to motivate you. Only God can judge you, and you better believe He will. Just like He will me. There's probably some things that we need to in our... There's going to be some long-term things and changes we have to make. There's going to be some stuff we have to instill in our home. There's going to be some stuff that we're going to have to produce through a mindfulness to engage with our spouse or, or, or with our children or with our nieces, our nephews, our loved ones, our family, long-term. But there's probably some folks need chased off now. There's probably some things in our life that need chased off now. Now. You know how he ends it? He says, remember them. It's funny because all through this chapter, you know what he's been saying? He's been praying, he's been saying, remember me, remember me, remember me. When he comes to the end and he sees there's still some people that are not going to do right, you know what he says? Remember them, God. Remember them, they've defiled the priesthood. It's as though Nehemiah is washing his hands and recognizing this, that if they won't accept help, they can't be helped. So where are you and I at today? The Holy Ghost been knocking at your door about some things? I'll tell you this, if we turn Him away, there's no hope and help found for our lives, for our marriages, for our homes. The only thing left after that is for God to wash His hands of the whole mess and to say, if they are bound and determined to make shipwreck, then I'll let them do it because I won't trample upon their free will. I'll let them make their decisions in life. We're, we need to get our heart fixed on, fixed on the right thing. You know what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3? Set your affection on what? On things above. Where Christ sitteth at the right hand. Our, we're dead. Our life is hid with Christ in God. We need to get our affection off of this world and on to the things of God. The things of God ought to be the most important things to us. The biblical principles ought to be the guiding force in our home. Uh, biblical activity, church activity, spiritual activity. I don't even just mean church activity. I mean praying with your kids, reading your Bible with your kids, witnessing to people in front of your kids, teaching them the truth of God's Word, uh, praying with them over loved ones, lost loved ones, praying with them over needs. I'm talking about actively, spiritually engaging with your family. It ain't just about what goes on in these walls. That ought to be the meat of our life. And it ought to be the thing that we lay the greatest emphasis on if we want our home to be anything other than an absolute mess. At the end of the day, if our affections ain't right, don't none of the rest of it matter. We may get the rest of it right, and it'll be right for a month or two, but if we don't get our heart right, eventually that stuff's going to creep right back in. It don't start by looking at the little ones and saying, all right, you grow up and do better than me. It starts by saying, all right, I'm going to start doing better right here from where I'm at so that I give them an example to follow. We've raised generations of people saying, well, I want my kids to have better than I have. And we have. TV I got in my house is better than anything you ever had. The car I drive is more dependable than anything you ever had. It's the truth. Well, maybe not mine, but the cars that they have today, right? Do we really think we're better off? Do we really think our nation's better? Listen, we've left a better house, but we've left a very awful home. It's going to take more. And I don't mean in the way of dollars and cents. I mean in the way of prayers and dedication and time, of actively investing and infusing spiritual truth and guiding principles and biblical concepts into our children's lives, into our marriage, into our home.